Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kerwin. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cabalia. And today we have a very special guest. We have Anita Schnee, who's a Feldenkrais practitioner. So welcome, Anita. It's such a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you, Alex. Lovely to be here. Yes. And before we jump into the conversation with you, I thought what I wanted to do is talk for a few minutes about why I have always valued the Feldenkrais work and body exploration of body awareness in general, why I have made that such an important part of the teaching that I share. So let me all settle back, make yourselves comfortable, get a cup of tea, whatever, and I'll, I'll tell you a story. How's that? So way back when, and this goes back now quite a number of decades, well before clicker training, one of the people I had the very great privilege to learn from was Linda Tellington Jones, who's the founder of Teamwork. And Linda is, I mean, the Teamwork, for those who aren't familiar with it, it is such a very gentle, very humane method of, of exploration with the horses and, well, with all animals, really. And it involves, in part, some body work. So Linda had developed this body work techniques of movements of the hand, where you would do circles and other, so you would take your fingers and anchoring the palm of your hand uh, along the horse's side, you would move your fingers around in a circle and there'd be this lift and pause and breathe. And, and it, it was absolutely remarkable what these very simple movements, actions that you were doing with the horses, how profound change you could create with them. And that was, there were other bodywork techniques as well that were involved in the work. And one day I was, uh, when I was working with Linda and she was showing us the different types of movements, actions that we could do with our hands. She was showing me what they felt like by doing them on my back. So she did this one action with the palm of her hand uh, resting along my back and she lifted it and it felt good. And And then she did it a different way and it felt phenomenal. It felt beyond great. And I asked Linda, what's the difference? What did you do? And she said, in the second one, she breathed up through her feet. Now, I'm a biologist, I've studied anatomy. I know that we breathe with our lungs. We don't breathe with our feet. So, you know, what nonsense was this? And anyway, as a child, I had really severe hay fever. And so for a good part of my life, I my breath didn't go much past my collarbones. I was always congested. And, you know, the, the thought of never of breathing from my feet was just completely foreign because I could barely breathe with my lungs. 
So this was a, an absolutely foreign concept to me, but I knew that it meant something to Linda. And, and so I went in search of what it means to breathe from your feet. And through a whole series of explorations, I now know not only what it means to breathe up through your feet, but what it means to breathe up through the ground. It's a very real sensation for me. It's a, it is a very real experience for me. It's not just a metaphor. But I'm sure for others who are listening to this, it, it still sits in that realm of metaphor only. And what I discovered is that through this exploration, that the more I explored, the more I came to understand what it means to breathe up through your feet and other things related to that, the more subtle the responses became between myself and my horses, that things changed dramatically in the riding, that I could handle more difficult horses, that I could be softer in the work, that everything about the communication was transformed. And so I began to teach it as a very much an important component of the training that, that I do. And I was really lucky early on. So Linda, one of the things that Linda did is she introduced us to the work of Feldenkrais. So she brought, I would say she's the one who's responsible for bringing the Feldenkrais work into the horse world because Linda had studied with Feldenkrais, had become a Feldenkrais practitioner. And it was out of that study that she developed what she calls the teamwork, the Tellington Jones equine awareness method. And so she brought Feldenkrais work into the horse world. At about the same time, so this is the 1980s, about the same time Sally Swift was working and developing centered riding. And Sally brought the Alexander technique into the horse world and transformed the way that riding instruction occurs in, in this country. So prior to Sally, the typical riding instruction was came out of military training and was very much do this, do it now, do it better, and, and, and don't give me any excuses. And what do you mean you fell off the horse and you're crying and you're now afraid and you don't want to get back on? Get back on that horse and, and jump that fence and stop this nonsense. And that was, that was riding instruction. And there are a lot of people who stopped riding because that was riding instruction. And then Sally Swift came along, who was just the sweetest, nicest, gentlest person. And she brought the Alexander work into the horse world. She brought the idea of visualizations very strongly into the horse world. She's had a, a major and powerful influence in the horse world. And I was very lucky because one of my clients uh, very early on when I was just starting really to teach was an Alexander practitioner who had also studied the Feldenkrais work. And we did trades. She worked, uh, she shared with me the, what she was learning in terms of the Alexander work and the Feldenkrais work and, and, and many other things as well. And then I worked with her horse and he had a, a shoulder injury. And so he needed a fair amount of support to keep him sound. And we just had a lovely time. And it was really her work that formed the foundation 
for what I teach in terms of the body awareness. And then I've added to that some things that I've gathered, collected, filtered from Tai Chi and Qigong and some other sources as well, some of the Pilates work and so on. And anyone who's taken clinics with me knows that balance is a central theme. And certainly balance for the horses is a central theme for me. And to understand balance and then to really have an, a better understanding of what we're looking at in the horses and also to understand what it is that we want to ask the horses to do, we can explore that in our own bodies. So how I move very much becomes a reference point for what I'm looking at in my horses. And it helps me to understand what the horses are doing in their body. But I need a baseline, I need a reference point. So I need to know what I own in my body, what is a normal feel for me. So that when I'm working with a horse and I feel a distortion from that reference point, that I have a way of interpreting it in terms of this is the horse influencing my balance. And how could I influence the horse in return? And, and that's something that might be of interest to talk about a little bit. But recently, I've been overdoing certain things. So I've been overdoing a lot of the physical work in terms of getting all the spring work done, you know, setting up the vegetable garden, which meant do a lot of hauling of uh, last winter's manure pile, uh, wheelbarrow by wheelbarrow kind of thing. We don't, we're not, we're, we're not really mechanized at the barn. So there was a lot of physical work. And then there was also a lot of computer work. And so I was sitting in chairs for a lot of hours, way too many hours. And those two things kind of ganged up on me. And I was feeling just incredible incredibly creaky. You know, I'd get out of a chair and think, I feel like I'm a hundred years old the way I'm creaking along. So I've been treating myself to marathon Feldenkrais sessions. So you have been so generous and kind. You've been, Anita, you've been attending the clinics that, that I gave at Cindy Martin's in Arkansas up until the pandemic. And we often would have Feldenkrais sessions as part of those clinics. And then you would share the recordings with us. And then you've also been doing twice a month, you've been doing Zoom uh, Feldenkrais sessions and you share those recordings with us as well. So I have a small library of your recordings. And so I just did this marathon session over several days and I feel great now. But what's really interesting is the difference that I'm feeling in my riding. So I don't get to ride very much because it's, and it's a real challenge these days for me to stay riding fit because my horses are senior citizens and they, I can't ride very long. So, you know, Robin, actually I don't, we don't ride Fengor at all anymore because he has uh, respiratory problems. So it's Robin. And while Robin has always been four going on five, there are times when I have to admit that he's been four going on five for a lot of years. So <laughs> I don't ride him 
very long or very often. And, and so what was a real treat was to get on, to actually enjoy uh, some time together with him where I wasn't setting up the vegetable garden, but to feel the, how, how different everything was because I had done this marathon session of the Feldenkrais work. And that part of what it gave me were so many options that I wasn't ha having to think, oh, I want to turn, what do I do with my hip? What do I do with, this? you know, none of that. It was just integrated in me, all of these different ways of lifting up and turning and that were, that he could respond to. And we could have this lovely, subtle, beautiful, balanced dance together. And because of that, that reminder of how important this body integration, body awareness, this whatever, you'll, you'll be much more brilliant in describing it than I am, but how important this is to our interaction with the horses. I thought it was high time that we invited you to come and talk to us about the Feldenkrais work. So with that as the introduction, welcome. And where wow. do we go from there? What an introduction. Wonderful, Alex. I'm so happy to hear everything that you report. So maybe I should introduce myself a little bit and explain. Yes. Yeah. So I've been a Feldenkrais practitioner now for a really long time since I graduated the training in 1986. And I became incredibly excited when I read an article in the local so, newspaper. Uh, before we get to, to where you're heading, so what was it in the mid-1980s that drew you to the Feldenkrais work? I've never asked you that. Oh, right. Um, at the time, I was a trial lawyer. I had graduated law school, done my work in the judiciary as clerk to the judges, and decided it was time to go into practice. So I had a very intense experience preparing for a trial. And early one Sunday morning, <clears throat> the trial was supposed to start the next day, I tried to pull a file out of my car. That, that's all it was. I was reached forward, slit, started to slide the file toward me. I didn't even lift it. And I just, I almost fell down with the pain. The pain was just like a thunderbolt. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and because I was this incredibly intense and driven person, I picked up the file, closed the car, <laughs> went into the building. It was Sunday morning, said hello to the watchman. I don't, I don't know if I took the elevator, might, might have even climbed the stairs, got to my office, put the file down and lay down on the floor and thought, I'm going to die. It was really that, that bad. And I was really disabled. I spent about a year and a half in bed, uh, just crawling from bed to the grocery store and back to bed. But the thing was, I had read an article in the Smithsonian Magazine in January, 1981, and that date I remember, um, about Feldenkrais. And at that time, I was a third degree black belt in Aikido, 
And I thought, wow, this sounds really interesting, but I'm fitter than fit and I probably don't need this. And then went on with my life until this disastrous thing happened. And what I found from the medical profession was really not very helpful. And I remembered this article. And so I went pretty much straight to my local Feldenkrais practitioner in Detroit, which is where I was at the time. And thereupon spent really um, a long time basically rebuilding my life. I abandoned trial practice way too aggressive and, and like, like war basically, not good for me. And, and embarked on this long process. But the thing was, the Feldenkrais work was so mysterious to me. I mean, I just, for example, I would tell my practitioner, my back, my L5 vertebra, my this, my that, and she would be working with my neck and my feet. And I said, she's not listening. <laughs> I said, no, it, now here's what I said to you. Now, why are you working with my feet and my neck? And she just could not explain it to yeah. me. And so I got very irritable and decided that I actually had to learn to become a practitioner and that's, that's how I did it. Yeah, and ever since then I have my life back and what a wonderful life it is because I've been able to integrate my legal practice in a much more humane way and then eventually discovered your work, Alex, and wow, what a transformation and a delight and a joy it's been ever since. Wow. And that's been about what what's it been now? 2016 was the first clinic that I that I visited at Cindy's. Yes. I've always absolutely adored horses. I was gaga horse person when I was an adolescent girl, but it just I never could get get back to them until this experience and now what a happiness. I, I don't own a horse and, and I put my hands on horses as often as I can, which is not often enough. But I love being with your horse people, Alex, your community, the community you've built around your work is just priceless. And I love the clinics and I really eat, eat up the learning. It doesn't matter to me that you're talking about uh, people with horses. It, it all applies to every living being and the universe. Yeah. Yes, it does. So do you want, you were... I interrupted you when you were going to talk about the magazine article. Oh, yes. Shall we include that? Why not? It's Why just, not? It's fun. Um, I, I my friend who actually lives in this small community out by Cindy's, I, I was doing Feldenkrais with her and she knew that I loved horses. And she brought me this article that mentioned your coming to Arkansas and that you used the you you drew on the Feldenkrais wisdom and I lost my mind. I was so excited. <laughs> and that's how I found you. Um, that's the story there. Yeah. And, and you've been a wonderful addition to the clinics because you've brought the Feldenkrais work really front and center into the clinics. And so I think we should, how do you describe the work? Because I know there will be people listening who are going, Feldenkrais, what? <laughs> what are they talking about? So who was Moshe Feldenkrais? What is the work that he developed? Well, I'm giggling, Alex, because there is a trainer who's actually written an article called Felden What? <laughs> this is just a recurring uh, challenge to try yes. to explain to people what this strange work is really about. Moshe Feldenkrais, um, <clears throat> studied with Alexander, whom you mentioned, 
Um, he derived some of his thinking from, from Alexander. He was, what a man he was. He was um, an engineer and he had um, physics training. He worked with Marie Curie in, um, in Paris during the war. He was- Was he German? He, he was Ukrainian. It, it, it was what? He was U Ukrainian. So ah. he, yes, he, he, well, further back in the story, he was Ukrainian. He was from a rabbinical background. His family was in a long line of rabbis. And he, the, the legend, I think it's the truth, is he walked from the Ukraine to Palestine at the time. And so he spent yeah. um, some time. That, that was, that was during World War One. So he was something, he was, he was not even 18, I don't believe at that time. But that was, that was during World War One that he walked to Palestine. And the legend, as you put it, was that he was, he was sort of like the Pied Piper of uh, Hamlet, that he, was, he gathered around him uh, lots of children who started following him because I must have looked like he sort of knew what he was doing or something. And they joined to uh, earn a little money and to get earned enough to eat. They joined a circus, which is where he learned some of the acrobatic moves that he used later when he was developing the martial arts and that's the that's one legend I've read you can tell me if it's total totally made up mythology or if that conforms to some other things you've heard it's I a fascinating heard, life I hadn't heard that one but why not you know why not? <laughs> well, this is this is what Norman Doidge wrote in the brain that heals heals itself and then, so then he went, so he went to Palestine and between the wars, Jews could not carry weapons that they were not allowed to carry weapons to defend themselves. And so apparently it was not uncommon for Jews in Palestine to be attacked by people with knives. And the initial, your reaction when you are attacked by somebody with a knife is to sort of curl up and try and protect yourself. And Feldenkrais, using the, some of the techniques that he had learned from the circus, showed people ways of deflecting an attacker to keep themselves safe. And that that went into the judo when he was back in France, in, in Paris, between the, the wars. In fact, um, the, the judo was developed in, in Japan, of course, and he became acquainted with Kano-sensei, who was the man who was prominent in, in um, really translating Japanese sword work into hand-to-hand. -hand. And okay. so Moshe had done this work um, under the, the British um, mandate in Palestine. Um, that was the era that was for imposing restrictions on Jews. And of course, there was this tragic conflict with Arabs also. And in that context, he developed this work. And then he officially studied judo. I think, yes, it was in, when, when he was in Paris that he, that he, that he hooked up with Kano Sensei. And then he also studied physics when he was in Paris. Yeah, he, he was, I think, in the nuclear program or something like that um, during the Second War. Yes. Um, he, he worked in Britain at that point. Uh, in, in nuclear physics. And there's actually, it's, I, I just was able to hear a lecture he gave at CERN 
which is the nuclear uh, physics research lab in Switzerland. And I was trying to imagine what it was like for physicists to listen to Moshe, who was talking about, if there was no light, do you think there would be eyes? You know, things like that. <laughs> if there was no gravity, do you think there'd be a skeleton? And you could just kind of hear in the room this kind of, what is this guy talking about? But he was, he had this unbelievably agile mind where he was able to understand these highly, highly difficult abstract mathematical principles, physical principles. But then, of course, he was very athletic, as you can hear in the background, and he injured himself very severely, his knees. And he kept re-injuring himself until one day he said, I just, I'm just an idiot. I have to figure out why I keep hurting myself like this. And in that process of working with him, his own injury and his own use of himself, um, he recovered from these knee injuries. And that I think is the, is pretty much the agreed genesis of the work that he did. It's so strange though, because I can't think of another modality that was such an integration of hard science, very hard science, and this appreciation and experience of the of the self, you know, the use of the self and the decisions and the choices we make physically to keep ourselves sound. I, I can't think of another modality. So the work is really, un, it's quite unusual and quite strange. But as you mentioned, Norman Doidge, I mean, this is really exciting times we live in now because it turns out, at least in my own um, journey with Feldenkrais, the understanding is that this work is about the nervous system and the neurology and the way the brain works in connection with the physical feedback from the senses into the brain and the, and the sensory motor loop in the brain that feeds back into um, the way we move and the way we use ourselves. So it's it's mysterious now because that whole system is incredibly mysterious, but not necessarily because it's impossible to make sense of what happens. It's just a very unusual way to experience yourself. It's like you really get to feel how your brain works. It's very unusual that way. Yes. And I loved is when you when you do a Feldenkrais session, you often, as, as we're getting ourselves quiet it down so that you know you're shifting from the everyday and you're you lie down on the floor or you're sitting in a chair and lying on your back is not comfortable or doable but you're lying on the floor and you're just letting the the jangle of the day melt away so that you can have this quiet listening time and while we're doing that you're often talking about some aspect of the work and there was one session that I did in my great marathon, where you were, there was a movement, you were, the instruction was to move our knees, doesn't really matter, but to move our knees to the right and left. And you said, and one of the things you said to, that Moshe liked to have is three choices, that you, you like to have three options, three different ways of doing something. And you had only thought of two ways at the time. And then as you were going through, oh, now I've got this third way of doing it. Now, now I'm happy. And, and I love that because that relates so much to the behavioral training of the principle of there's always more than one way to teach everything. You know, and it just ties in so beautifully there. When we say, oh, I want to teach my horse to lower his head. 
Well, there isn't one way to teach a horse to lower his head. There are a dozen ways or more to lower, to teach a horse to lower his head. And this idea of removing restrictions. So there's not one way to turn your head. You know, when I was sitting on Robin and I was thinking I'd like to turn and I was feeling all this beautiful lift that I had from having done these the sessions over a period of several days and, and how much more core stability and strength and I'd gotten taller and you know, all of these lovely things. And, and there wasn't just one option available to me, but there was this integration of options that was a pure delight to explore. And I think, you know, that's such a gem in this work and that we are, you're, we're not, you're not telling us, do it this way. This is the way to turn. This is the way to move your, your shoulder, your arm. It's an exploration and discoveries of connections of that early, you know, when you're saying to your Feldenkrais practitioner, you know, you don't understand, it's my L5 that I need you to work on. And she's working on your feet. You know, what is the connection between feet and lower backs and shoulders and hands? And, and when you start to feel the integration and, and how these tiny little movements turn into such a feeling of well-being, that's, that's a neat thing. So what is the connection? Between feet and L5. The brain. Ah. The brain sits on top of the whole enterprise. And if you change the way you send messages to the brain, the brain responds. And there's and this work does not direct people because how on the earth could you do that? The brain has is said to have as many neurons as there are stars in the sky, billions. So every person is unique in and of their, their own history, their own sense of themselves, and the moment which changes constantly. So it's, it's absolutely part and parcel of the work that we just, it's this image that I, that I like to use is, there's a, a physical principle called Weber-Fechner, and I can throw that jargon around, and then that's it. That's about all I know about it, <laughs> except that, the image that um, is used to illustrate that idea is a candle in full sunlight. So you could barely see the flame and you see nothing of the pool of light that, that the candle throws. In darkness, of course, then it's completely different. So the metaphor applies to this subject we're talking about. It's like, what is the connection between feet and, and L5? If you lower the tone of the nervous system. It, that's what Alex described about settling down, quieting, letting the cares of the day melt away. That's like lowering the lights. And then when you drop in these tiny, tiny, tiny little droplets of movement, your brain is able to feel them in a different way because it can see this puddle of light that the movement is, is creating. And like to depart from the metaphor, the puddle of light means that you move and then you stop moving and then you feel what happened. And then you might do this and that again. 
and you spend a little time with that. And then the connection that I really, it just thrills me no end and has really changed the way I look at Feldenkrais work is Alex's notion of constructional training. So in what I'm describing in this very low light, low input from for, to the nervous system, you put in a little piece here and then you come back, reversibility. And you put that same piece in, except it's not the same because you're already changing. And then you come back and then you do it again and you come back, then you rest, you pause. And then you do the same bit and then you add a little bit and then you go back a little bit and then back again and you build a gesture. But because you have created an environment where the brain can really soak in these little teeny inputs and start to reorganize. Um, that's, that's a term I imagine that could, could be describing the brains firing into different areas, that, using neurons that um, haven't been used before, setting up connections in the brain that haven't existed before. And here's the, mag the mystery of it is this feeling of well-being that after you practice these little tiny movements in this whole process, gosh, I mean, anything can happen from the nervous system just folding down into sleep of the most beautiful kind to just excitement, to vivacity and freshness. I mean, there's no predicting how your nervous system will take it depending on what you did it that day, the day prior and so on. So that's a long answer, Dominique. Uh, for how the foot is connected to L5. But again, the really short answer is senses go up through the spine to the brain. The brain takes in the information and makes choices, Not maybe not in, intentional choices the way we think of them, but the brain is really busy and active in creating in a way that the brain wants to and then feeds down back down to the senses and that's how the, the connections are established. It's a, it's a, it's particularly unusual because really when you think about what we're talking about here, we're basically talking about fluid, spinal fluid, water, and electrical impulses, and chemistry, you know, the hormones and all like that. Those media, I mean, you know, we very rarely think of ourselves as depending on those media, but we do. And to force, to use force, to use willpower, to use um, make it happen and get it done in the in that medial um, context. It just it's a mismatch, and so the brain will will kind of pull into its own habit, and this magical process of growth and development and change simply won't happen. You'll just repeat. This is the way we do it. This is the right way. That's it. And the right way could very well be the wrong way, because it's just it's the habitual way. But the habitual way does not necessarily mean a, pa a movement pattern that is working well for you. It's just what you've fallen into through a lifetime of use and injuries and sitting in chairs or not sitting in chairs or you know whatever it is that you've been doing with yourself. After some of my marathon sessions, I would get to the barn and oh, it was just such a pleasure because walking felt so effortless absolutely effortless it's like oh I where's where's a nice place to go for a walk i just feel like i really need to go for a walk right now because it feels so good to move well talk about positive reinforcement right yes that is the the cherry on top of the whole thing 
is that yes. if you just really invest in process rather than directive, it, it's the, the journey rather than the destination. There's a whole bunch of uh, cliches around that that are really meaningful because, <laughs> because if you really invest in process, then you it's like you enter into the stream of what's happening. Your brain is more and more able to do that. And then you can experience these really startlingly gorgeous things. It's, it's, it's quite amazing. So if, if we go back to Feldenkrais, when did he share this as, I don't know if you called it a method, but when did he feel he had something to share uh, with the world? He began teaching when he was in Israel, I think it was Israel at that time. I'm a little foggy on the, on the details. He then, at, in, in some way that I haven't quite tracked, he ended up teaching in the US in the human um, improvement movement in the 70s. He started at Esalen. He taught in a couple of uh, places. And then he began a professional training because at that point he was in his 80s. And um, he was able to train, I think, two um, groups of people. And then unfortunately he died in 1984. Did he write some of his uh, thoughts? Oh yeah, a lot. Okay. <laughs> he's, he's written a number of books and I have diligently tried to read them. Remember, I'm a lawyer. I'm supposed to, you know, really understand. <laughs> I because his brain works in such a wild way. It's very oh. difficult to follow. And, and I, and Yes, he certainly did write books, and, and I can tell you the titles if you like, but <laughs> I think it's a lot more fruitful just to do the work. <laughs> okay, okay. And so um, some of these, the people in those groups started sharing, because when, when did it become so popular? Um, is it popular? <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we practitioners. <laughs> well, you hear it. You hear it. Uh, it comes up a lot, I think. Um, I, I don't know. It's because I'm I'm close to. But even before I think uh, Alexandra mentioned her enthusiasm, I had heard that name before, and it was very mysterious. You would have encountered it pro probably more so than the general public, because for the dancers, yeah, and maybe acrobats, right. and so on, there his work. It would make sense that his work would be in that community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's it's funny. It seems like musicians have have gravitated toward Feldenkrais, and dancers and actors gravitate toward Alexander. It seems like huh? better better known in those circles. But there's a very intimate connection because, as I mentioned, um, Feldenkrais had a lot of respect for Alexander and studied him. But then, so how do you know when someone says I'm a Feldenkrais practitioner? How do you know they're legit? They're good. There is a guild that many practitioners, not all, because there's heavy politics involved, but most practitioners belong to the Feldenkrais Guild. And in order to be a member of that guild, you have to have studied about 800 hours in a training program over, mine was four years. So it's quite extensive education because we are being asked to just totally shift paradigm. Um, so it takes a while to actually learn to get into the, the work deeply enough to be able to offer it. And how does the medical uh, community react to it? Are they aware of it? Do they recommend it? Well, um, that depends. Um, again, <laughs> it just really gives me joy to tell you that, again, uh, Dr. Norm Norman Doidge is just a fantastic 
Ambassador? Ambassador, exactly. He's an (laughs) MD, but he has really interested himself in um, how the brain works. And there are increasingly, there are books that reference Feldenkrais, although not as many as I would like. Generally speaking, it depends where you are in the country, of course, in the world, of course. Um, The medical profession has not embraced Feldenkrais, doesn't know about it and is highly suspicious because you can imagine the once you depart from the medical orthodoxy, you're kind of in a, a no man, no person's land. Um, and it's very hard to orient about what's reputable and what's less reputable. Yeah, so it is, a, it is um, uh, well, we're still waiting. Let's put it that way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but for my purposes, because I'm, I'm not using it for physical therapy, for treating injuries. I'm using it for being able to ride better. <laughs> so as, as body awareness, really, no? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So what has kept me interested is the feedback from my horses. So talk about positive reinforcement. That when I explored this work and similar work, that my horses tell me and very clearly that Whatever I've been doing, they like it and I should do more of it. They give me lovely, feels like heaven rides. And so this understanding more, I don't, you know, it's, to, to have the body awareness, the control, the exploration, to be able to send a thought through your, your nervous system and to just think about thinking about some subtle little movement in your feet and to have that ripple all the way up through the top of your head and to feel your horse respond to that is heavenly. And then when Anita, when you started looking at the work and your the structure of the loopy training, which we teach you know, in terms of how to organize a lesson for the horses or how to organize the teaching of a skill for a person and you're looking at that and going wow that just fits so beautifully with the shaping of a Feldenkrais lesson and they just fit together so magnificently that it's really exciting it's just really exciting so I wonder if if rather than talking around the edges of it if what we should do at this point is Anita is to have you share with us a short Feldenkrais session. I'm going to stop us here. You've heard us introduce the Feldenkrais work. We'll save for next time the wonderful experience of a Feldenkrais session. That's going to give you a chance to set yourself up to really enjoy what Anita is going to share with us. I know many of you listen to these podcasts while you're driving or you're doing chores. You definitely do not want to be driving while you are listening to Anita's lesson. You'll want to be lying down on the floor, on a yoga mat or some other surface where you can be comfortable. And if lying on the floor is too hard for you, you can also sit in a chair. What I don't want you to do is to be driving. That's a completely wrong focus for this kind of session. We'll remind you at the start of the next episode how to set yourself up so you can really enjoy this experience. 
Anita has picked out an awareness through movement lesson that she designed for my virtual clinic on rope handling. You'll be working with your hands and wrists and the connection up through your shoulders. I loved this lesson. It's a fabulous prep for handling a lead or a rein, not just with softness, but with the ability to really listen through your fingertips. So join us next time for a fabulous treat. And in the meantime, stay safe and have fun with your horses. Music